This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. associated pneumonia occurs and what avoidable risk factors contribute to this development. I was recently contacted by a husband whose 57-year-old wife was intubated in the ICU for COVID pneumonia. At that point of contact, she'd been intubated for about five days and had continually decreasing ventilator settings and was on a PEEP of 9 and 60%. Her good husband asked about a sedation vacation but was told they couldn't because she had COVID. When I encouraged him to discuss the ABCDEF bundle with the team, the response was, nope, we can't do the ABCDEF bundle because COVID is too different, despite the evidence otherwise. She was at a RAS of negative three and continued to stay that way without an obvious indicator for deep sedation and immobility. By day eight, she was on a peep of five and 40%, and I was really encouraging the husband to advocate for a sedation vacation. In my mind, she should have been awake and walking either the entire time or at least for the past few days. Yet, even on minimal ventilator settings, the husband was told she's not ready yet. On day nine, she was given a sedation vacation but was still too drowsy to pass a breathing trial. On day 10, she was able to be on CPAP for a breathing trial for three and a half hours but did fatigue and become tachypnic, so they resumed cis control. That day, she had been answering her husband's questions and trying to communicate. She was a RAS of zero and maybe plus one on a very few occasions. Yet that night, she was resedated. They told her husband the following day that she would only be allowed to do a 30-minute breathing trial. She spent four days on a peep of five and 40% on and off of sedation without any occupational or physical therapy, despite clear signs of diaphragm dysfunction. By the fifth day of minimal ventilator settings, she developed a fever, an increase in white blood cell count, and the next day her ventilator requirements increased. Despite the new antibiotics, she developed worsening respiratory failure, septic shock, and over the next few days, she rested four times before expiring. Had she received the ABCDEF bundle, which is still applicable and essential for COVID patients, she would have been awake and moving long before achieving minimal ventilator settings. This would have had her brain and muscles ready to independently breathe the very day her lungs had adequately recovered from the acute pneumonia. She would have been spared the additional exposure from the ventilator and very likely would not have developed the new ventilator-associated pneumonia she probably would have been able to be extubated on day eight after intubation as soon as her peep was five and at 40% and would have had an excellent chance of discharging home to her family to continue to care for her adult daughter with Down syndrome and enjoy her loving husband and resume her full life. Their sedation and immobility practices 
cost the ICU the labor and financial burden of an additional nine days in the ICU on mechanical ventilation, as well as the life of this woman. Yes, COVID led her to require mechanical ventilation, but poor sedation and immobility practices expedited and finalized her death. As mentioned in episode 95, one study looked solely at daily awakening and breathing trials, and it found that turning sedation down or off long enough to allow a patient to be awake enough to take their own breaths every day, decreased time on the ventilator by 2.4 days, and decreased the risk of ventilator-associated pneumonia by 65%. Imagine the impact of having them awake and mobile the entire time. If we are failing to do the bare minimum of daily awakening and breathing trials, we may be heading into the territory of being guilty of malpractice and wrongful death. We have Dr. Benjamin Wang with us to discuss the finer details and truths about ventilator-associated pneumonia and how we can prevent this lethal and expensive harm. Dr. Wang, welcome back. Thank you so much for your last episode. We're excited for this one. Let's talk today about down and dirty about ventilator-associated pneumonia. We talked last episode about a lot of the politics, legislation behind why it's such a problem still, how it's underreported. Today, let's address how it's caused and how we can prevent it. So just to remind your viewers, ventilator-associated pneumonia is a hospital-acquired pneumonia that affects basically patients who are on a ventilator, but principally those that are long-term with a breathing tube or a tracheostomy tube in place. The cause is pretty clear in the medical literature. Uh, There are technically four theoretical causes, but at this point, 99% of cases we know are caused by basically one route. You can imagine if you think about it theoretically, if you were, how, how these bacteria get into the lungs is really the cause of this um, condition. And so theoretically, the, the bacteria could come from the blood, could come from the outside skin and penetrate the skin into the chest cavity, into the lungs, have been war, <laughs> war and, and tropical diseases that have in case studies on that. They're very, very rare. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to raise my eyebrows over here. That wouldn't be my first thought. These, these are all theoretical. But I mean, if you approach this from a scientific point, point of view and say, well, you know, you should consider all the uh, causes. There are really four plausible routes for the bacteria to get into the lungs. I've never seen a case, I've never seen a study where the, the bacteria originated outside of a patient's skin, entered through the skin, through the chest cavity, and ended up causing a pneumonia. Never seen that. Usually, right. you know, that, that is theoretical. You know, from the blood standpoint, usually if you have a very septic patient and it's in their blood and it goes to the lungs, also possible usually causes a lot more other complications. And, you know, if, if the bacteria are in the blood, you have a bigger problem at that point. <laughs> and, then, and then the third route, uh, the third and the fourth route are really through the normal airway channel or through the trachea and into the, into the lungs. And when you put a breathing tube in, that basically into a patient's body or a tracheostomy tube, it basically creates two different spaces. The space 
inside the tube leading into the ventilator where the gas is being pushed out. And then the space outside of the breathing tube that, that is uh, in contact with the, the airway tissue and, and uh, continuous with the, the rest of the body's other systems. And, and quite frankly, I'll, I'll, long story short, we keep the ventilator circuit, the part that pushes air in pretty clean. We humidify it, we change the circuits routinely when they're soiled, we clean the ventilators. So the gas that we put into patients is very clean. And that's a good thing. We have filters in place so that we're not, you know, mistakenly putting bacteria through that route. Which means out of these four theoretical ways that people get pneumonia, there is really one that um, stands out and is by far the most plausible. And, and most of the literature basically says that 99.9% of these pneumonias is caused because bacteria will leak down on the outside of a breathing tube or a tracheostomy tube, get um, around our, our protective measures and then enter into the lower airways. And if you think about it, it, it makes sense because we see some of these kind of phenomenon in our real life. You know, if you if you're sitting on Miami Beach and you have a margarita and you happen to drink your margarita out of a straw because, you know, you don't want to mess up your lipstick. <laughs> That's my life. <laughs> then, then you find then you find out that on a hot Miami day, there's condensation on this straw and that condensation will leak down the side of the straw into the margarita. Now, it's not a lot of condensation, but if you think about it, that's exactly what's happening inside a person's body when a breathing tube or a tracheostomy tube is there. There's going to be fluid that just accumulates in that area. The bacteria will use that fluid as a place to grow. And then over time, gravity will allow that fluid to leak lower and lower um, into the airway. And when you think about all the other things we do to the patient in conjunction with providing mechanical ventilation, then it becomes a very, very clear picture. Number one, we usually paralyze these patients. Now, when we paralyze these patients, we use a paralytic agent in the beginning to place the tube because otherwise it's very hard to place the tube. But it is also a practice that we continue to paralyze these patients for extended periods of time. And what that also means is these patients can't cough. And so if they can't cough, they can't protect their airway. So anything that flows down the breathing tube at that point is going to get past their natural reflexive response to dirty things and bad things going down there, and it's going to get into the lungs. At the same time, when we anesthetize them, we give them anesthesia, that anesthesia will paralyze the specialized cilia cells inside the airway, which are designed to, and, and inside the lungs for that matter, which are designed to basically sweep things out of the airway and prevent infections. So now, our sedatives do that. Our sedatives and our anesthetics. I did not know that. Yeah. So that is one strike against the patient that makes them a lot more vulnerable, but also, when you think about it carefully, the positioning of this tube and the patient also make the patient inclined to having fluid accumulate in that lower uh, respiratory area. 
And as a consequence, that fluid has nowhere else to go but down into the lower airways. Because when you paralyze somebody, they can also, they aren't swallowing either. And when they're not swallowing, uh, their esophagus is, is flat and doesn't allow the fluid that we normally swallow on almost a minute, minutely basis to, to go anywhere. And so we've, we've created this kind of a perfect, perfect system because we were focused on providing different aspects of that medical care. And I think the assumption is if they're at 30 degrees, they're safe from that kind of aspiration. The, the recommendation is actually 30 to 45 degrees. I, when the studies were done, they said 45 degrees would be most beneficial. And nobody yeah, does that. No, because if you have a sedated patient, especially like an obese patient, I guess probably any patient at 45 degrees, they're not moving. They can't move themselves. They're going to slide down and that's more work to have to slide them back up, slide them back up. So 30 degrees is kind of the a happy spot where you feel like you're protecting their airway, preventing aspiration, and yet you don't have to keep on sliding them up. Right, right. Now, I'm not advocating for people to stop doing this practice, but what, what we have to recognize is obviously we're doing the best we can, but it's still suboptimal in terms of preventing these these bacteria and fluids from getting into the, the, the lungs. And until somebody can reverse gravity or get rid of that, we're going to continue to have the same problem, not only with the, the patient's positioning, but also the fluid that is building back in inside the patient's basically throat. So this is just another piece to my puzzle, trying to figure out why outcomes in the awake and walk in ICU are so much better. And these patients often are almost at a 90 degree angle when they're sitting up because I don't want to sit at 30 degrees when I'm awake. That's not comfortable. Yep. So when they're awake and conscious, they want to be up. They're either high, sitting high up in the bed or most often they're up in the chair fully at a 90 degree angle. So yep. I'm now appreciating the impact that that has on aspiration pneumonia or ventilator associated pneumonia. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's really even more than that, because when they are sitting up and when, they're, when they have early mobility, they're, per, they're able to talk and cough and react. So they're able to protect their own airway. And in, in the anesthesia field, I mean, being able to protect your airway is paramount. It, it means that a patient is going to be is going to do better, and that the anesthesiologist who is in charge of a case can kind of rest their hat that you know they've they've done a good job. But the ironic thing is, we are afraid of coughing when patients are intubated. They say, "But what if they cough?" And there is a difference between the agitated, delirious cough when it's constant. They're quote bucking the vent. Uh-huh. But that's happening. Then let's address the delirium, and sedation does not address that. And yet occasional coughing when patients have been reclined in bed and they're getting up to mobilize, they cough, Uh pause, and we sit there and suction them and clear out their airway. And it's a good thing. It is embraced. But culturally throughout the rest of the ICU community, if someone's coughing, it means that we need to sedate them more. Yes. You're saying that that substantially increases their risk of developing ventilator-associated pneumonia in addition to giving medication that's going to paralyze their cilia. Yes and open the gates for bacteria to just slide right in. Yes, yes. Amazing. And, and, and that's also, 
some of the half measures that we've been attempting to do in this fashion actually have shown to be beneficial for the patient, such as we now know that when a patient is, you anticipate a patient to be long-term ventilated, that you want to do daily sedation interruptions and an extubation assessment maybe once or even twice a day. It's recognized that if you can reduce the time a patient spends sedated on mechanical ventilation, they do better. And so there's always this, you know, the, the push in healthcare has been to try and get them off the ventilator completely by taking away sedation for a small, short periods of time, and then seeing if you can remove the breathing tube and get them up and awake and healthy. And unfortunately, sometimes patients aren't ready to be taken off the ventilator. They're not healthy enough. But it also, at, this, at the other end, it begs the question, well, if they're not able to get off the ventilator yet, could we remove sedation and could they do fine? Never start sedation. That's always yeah. my question. Yeah, yeah. Take out that whole complication altogether and not create the situation in which patients are going to fail those breathing trials because of diaphragm dysfunction, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. will cause weeks longer on the ventilator. Let's just prevent that so that we do decrease the time on the ventilator, which that alone decreases the risk of ventilator-associated pneumonia. Yep. The studies are pretty convincing that the less sedation we use, the less ventilator-associated pneumonias we have. Absolutely. Now you're providing so many more reasons of why that is. Now, now healthcare is complicated, obviously. They're, they're going to be patients who you're not going to be able to get off the ventilator. Mm-hmm. But if you can move them towards, in some fashion, being more functional and less impaired, we know for a fact that they, they do better. And, and one of the statistics with early mobilization, even in its kind of ununiformed and infancy and, and less aggressive state, is that it reduces time on mechanical, mechanical ventilation and improves weaning. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices barriers and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. So, to help prevent ventilator-associated pneumonia, we have decrease and or avoid sedation. Yes. Positioning, early mobility, allowing for coughing. Mm-hmm. What else? We also have, now the respiratory therapists are in charge of this. They do a lot of, and, and nursing is often in charge of this too. They do daily chlorhexidine oral, 
oral washes, you know, they also brush the teeth and kind of suction the fluid that accumulates in that area every couple of hours. And all of that has been shown to be, for the most part, natural. Although there is some, some data that chlorhexidine mouthwashes seem to increase mortality rates. Interesting. Why is that? We don't know. We don't know. And even though people would like to think that they know, <laughs> we really don't know. And it's, it's across the board. So we know that doing some, number one, doing oral care in general has improved rates of, of pneumonia in these patients. But for some reason, when you use something else other than chlorhexidine, the patients do a little better. But to this day, 99, 95% of hospitals here in the United States are still using chlorhexidine. And I'm not advocating change. It's just, we have to be aware of, of the data that's out there. That's an important piece. Frequency impact, the efficacy of that intervention. There are places that are much more aggressive with oral care and some places that aren't. There, there just isn't as much good data on whether it makes a difference to do it every four hours or six hours or even every two hours. It seems to be that most hospitals have settled on a, a four-hour kind of, you know, four-hour kind of schedule to do it. I mean, and then the other side of this also is when you do these mouthwashes and oral care, one person may do a better job than another, or one person, you know, may do it for longer. And, and there's just no way to standardize that practice right now either. So it's very user dependent. And so the, there are a couple of mechanisms of benefit, right? There's the actual cleansing, but mm -hmm. then there's the suctioning. Mm -hmm. So you don't have as many secretions to slide down. And those that do slide down are cleaner, mm -hmm. theoretically. Now, I, think, I think that we've, they have the, the cuff and that is somewhat protective of the airway. Tell me more about what the cuff does and does not do. Okay. Are protecting so, um, airway from those secretions. So as I, I mentioned, we do, when we go around and when the nurses and the respiratory therapists, they go around to the, the, the bedside and they do suctioning, they will put a, a little catheter into the mouth as far as they can go. And they will suction the fluid that they can get out from there. And oftentimes they'll get a good, you know, 50 cc's out or 20, 20 or 50 cc's at any given point, which means they know the fluid is there. The problem is that little suctioning device doesn't get down nearly far enough and it doesn't work when you're not by the bedside. And so what happens is even though you know there's fluid that you can get out, the fluid that is causing the pneumonias and keeping people on ventilators longer is actually much deeper and you can't see it. And so, um, you know, when, when we talk about breathing tubes, these are just basically tubes with a balloon on one end. And these balloons basically are called cuff, uh, cuff balloons. They sit in the airway and they're very good for blocking the airway enough so that you can push gas down. Over the years, we've, we've used a, different, a number of different types of these cuffs. And, in, you know, in the beginning when we were doing this... Um, you know, 50 years ago, we were using high pressure, low volume cuffs because those gave you very good seals. The problem was when you use them, when you used a little bit too much pressure, they cause 
so much trauma in the airway that these patients would actually come back with um, traumatic injuries. <laughs> develop stenosis. And develop stenosis. And so we came to the conclusion that we didn't want to use these tubes, we, these cuff balloons. We, used, we invented low-pressure, high-volume cuffs that were much softer. And if I were to liken the type of cuff that we use today, it's, it's almost like a very, very thin, if you were to take a, a plastic glove and blow them up, it's very similar to, to you know, the, the surgical gloves and the plastic gloves that you, you see that we normally use in healthcare. If you blow that up, that's the kind of soft um, consistency. And I'd even say many times they're even softer than, than the material that we use for, for latex gloves and plastic gloves for the matter. And the problem is they're very good at being non-traumatic, these cuffs, but they're very bad at sealing the airway against fluid. Because you can imagine if you use a very soft, very almost kind of a flimsy cuff so you can seal the airway to gas, when you encounter something that's a little heavier, like a fluid or secretions from the patient's mouth, or, you know, it's like saliva, that saliva is just going to push right past that, that cuff and get into the lower airways. And once it's down there, that's it. There's nothing that we have in place that can, that can prevent that stuff from causing problems. Just flourishing in a nice, moist, warm lung, right? Right. So now talk about your solution to that and the technology you've developed to help address that aspect of preventing VAPs. So, you know, back when I was, I was practicing, I recognized, I was reading the literature and, and the literature basically says that after about an hour of mechanical ventilation, nine out of 10 patients will have a volume, a certain volume of that fluid get into their lungs. After three hours, it'll be a hundred percent. Which means when you look at somebody who is put on a ventilator for days, even even weeks sometimes during the pandemic, we see people who are on the ventilator for months. They are at any given point, most likely aspirating bacteria into their lungs. And the only reason that they don't develop a secondary infection is number one, maybe because the antibiotics are working that we put them on. Or number two, their own host, their own immune system is uh, tackling it. Or they have a pneumonia and we just aren't seeing it. You see? So my company, I I started a company a number of years ago. Our goal was basically to create a breathing tube that could suction, remove the fluid that causes the pneumonia. Because the interesting thing is we know where the fluid is. We just can't see it. So the idea was, uh, say that again. We're always access it. Yes, yes. We can't access it. We know it's there. We know where it causes problems. So the idea behind my company, Nevap, was to create a breathing tube with the ability to apply suctioning in the area where the fluid accumulates. And if you can reduce the amount of accumulated fluid continuously, the idea is the fluid doesn't leak down, doesn't get past the cuff, doesn't enter the lower airways and doesn't cause pneumonia. And then as a consequence, and we know this from the literature, 
if you can do this successfully, the patients get off mechanical ventilation sooner and they get less pneumonia and they are um, more easily mobilized and easily weaned and we use less antibiotics and, and, <laughs> and they actually survive. They, they, the mortality rate drops in these patients. And other countries that are actually tracking and reporting their ventilator associated mm -hmm. pneumonia rates, they're reporting, what did you say, 40 to 50%? 45 to 50%. Rate in their COVID-19 patients. Yes, yes. Which we're, we're not that different. No. We just don't report it. No. But how much impact could this kind of approach to managing ventilated patients make in the burden on our healthcare system right now? If we have patients get better, quicker, less pneumonias, less mortality, less dysfunction because they're excavated sooner. Between the early mobility and the improved technology, this could make a huge impact. Absolutely. You know, if um, nobody can tell what's going to happen in the future, there are predictions that right now in this point in time, we are actually sitting um, in the eye of the storm. This Omicron variant is very likely to come in the next couple of months, spread much more rapidly than the Delta variant and cause an enormous surge that has the potential to, to really damage our healthcare system. And here we are two years after the start of this pandemic and everybody is tired. Our healthcare system is already strained. When you talk to um, healthcare leaders in, in, in Michigan and Minnesota and Iowa and, and Arkansas and Louisiana, all over the Midwest and the Northeast, what they're telling us is we have labor shortages, respiratory therapists, nurses, doctors, even custodial staff have decided to retire because they are just tired of, of fighting this uh, pandemic. And, and so we're at this point in which our healthcare system is not in the best state it could be. And we're on the precipice of, a, of basically a big surge of these infections. This type of intervention is likely to make more economic, clinical, and societal um, difference and impact than anything else we could possibly do. You know, I, I remember the beginning of this pandemic when everybody was clamoring about, oh, we don't have enough ventilators. This is going to be terrible. We need more, more masks and PPE and we need more testing and this such and everything. And our society decided to throw enormous amounts of resources into these things. For the most part, we did that. And here we are two years later and the problem is coming our way and none of what we have done is really going to make a huge amount of impact and difference at this point. You know, we can test it. If we had three times more testing, it, it might be beneficial. If we had, you know, three times more PPE, wouldn't, wouldn't be bad, wouldn't be a bad place to, to be. If we had three times more ventilators, probably wouldn't do anything. How <laughs> right. we're managing them on the ventilators. Right, right. These kind of details, they really matter a lot. And if there's anything about this pandemic that we can learn, it's that we need to listen to science and we need to focus and be aware of the details. Because when you're not aware of the details and you don't follow the science, problems tend to 
tends to come back and hurt us. Yes, I so many takeaway lessons from this pandemic. And the painful irony I've seen is that we as medical community have begged the public to understand and apply the research and the science in order to save lives, decrease the burden on the healthcare system, all these things. And yet when it comes to a lot of our practices in the ICU, we are not taking the same advice. We are not applying the science and the research to sedation and mobility practices and we're causing this perfect storm to create lethal and burdensome problems like ventilator-associated pneumonias. In this episode 33, it was in March of 2020, right as I felt like we were on the shore waiting for this tsunami of COVID to come over us. I put out an episode, so episode 33, calling it the domino effect, trying to say the same thing. We're getting all these ventilators, but we aren't going to have enough staff And if we're going to have this huge surge of patients on the ventilator, we need to have practices that will get them off the ventilator so that we'll be prepared to open up ventilators, beds, resources, staff for the newly infected patients. Because we, if we have all of our COVID-19 patients languishing for four months or four weeks or months, that occupies so much labor. And then the follow-up, the rehabilitation of those few survivors it is too much and it, it is not sustainable. Right. Um, in the episode with the Wake and Walking COVID ICU, mm-hmm. their average time on the ventilator for a COVID-19 patient is 10 days. Even if, if a patient is on the ventilator for four weeks, they still walk out, the IC, out of the ICU and the rehabilitation is minimal. Yeah. Why are we not applying those evidence-based interventions during the time of crisis when it is absolutely essential? Like This could save our specialty. Mm-hmm. I, I think the national average for a COVID patient on mechanical ventilation is somewhere between 15 and 22 days. And when they get a ventilator associated pneumonia, you can multiply that time by three. By three. Yeah. The hard thing is oftentimes they get trached. Oftentimes they cause this or they develop this pneumonia while they're in LTAC, while mm-hmm. they're outside of the ICU. So the ICU starts it starts the sedation, starts the immobility, causes the atrophy, punts it off to another facility. And sometimes they show up with these ventilators associated pneumonias. Uh, again, like in episode or last episode, we talked about how they're underdiagnosed. Yep. And yet, so I, don't, I just don't think we're really zooming out, looking at the big picture and realizing the burden of that. And, and it's a lot of these things we say, we don't have the resources for it. We don't have the finances for it. Yet your endotracheal tubes are not that expensive. No, no, they're not. If you consider, if you consider the most expensive breathing tube out there may be $25. And the the cost of one day of mechanical ventilation before the pandemic was about five thousand dollars a day. So we're talking about, I mean, the beautiful thing about these interventions is they're very cost effective. <laughs> it doesn't take higher and better instead of sedating a patient and you will save days to weeks on the ventilator you'll improve safety you'll improve outcomes and a sitter is not that expensive or safe staffing ratios or just the education to help the staff understand how to make their jobs easier through the a to f bundle right. and yet we don't invest in the effective interventions no we don't and, and healthcare is guilty of the same problem because we've created structures in healthcare to 
to basically make things hard to change and hard to learn and hard to, hard to listen to the good science. You know, we basically create a system where we keep the doctors and the nurses and the respiratory therapists working very hard. And then we don't give them a lot of support when they say, you know, I want to do something a little different. So what happens many times is healthcare workers are enormously incredible and, and tenacious people. You know, in order to really survive in healthcare, you got to develop a, a, a thick skin pretty early on and be able to run, roll with the punches because you'll get knocked down a lot. We both know <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> and that's, that's just, I mean, the nature of, of what our system looks like and our education process looks like. But when you knock a person down too many times, at some point they don't, they don't focus on new things anymore and, and trying to improve what they're doing. They're just trying to survive day in and day out. And that's where you really lose a lot of the, the I guess, the spark that people need to be in healthcare. And the good ones. Yeah. People that are there to make a change, to save lives, to have human connection. They've been stripped of that. And then they wonder, why are we here? And especially, mm-hmm. I, I just, I feel for these incredible listeners of the podcast, they reach out, they're saying, I want to make this change. And I love that they're in that. And I believe in them. That's why I do the podcast. Mm-hmm. I wish we had a better system that would say, thank you for caring that thing, caring about that. Thank you for going that extra mile, doing the research. Yes. Let's bring the group together. Let's talk about the research. They don't support innovation. Mm-hmm. They don't mm-hmm. support quality improvement. And that is really soul crushing for compassionate caregivers that are scientific and that do want to implement the science. Yeah. You know, in, in healthcare, we always talk about systems. Like, you know, if something happens, it wasn't because of an individual in the healthcare, healthcare industry or this facility. It was because a system wasn't in place to make that error or that problem, you know, un, un, impossible. And so like one of the systems that we don't have in this country is a a system of innovation and a central system of innovation. If you're a pharmaceutical company and you have $10 million, you can pay for innovation. You can pay for a study. You can pay for attention. You can pay for people to take your solution seriously. But that's not healthcare. That's business, right? Healthcare is not about making the most money. Healthcare is about finding solutions that make the whole system work better. And if we are, a tr- if our country is serious about having a healthcare system, we should also be serious about finding some way to not only develop the innovative proof, regardless of financial incentives, but also disseminate that proof in a manner that makes not only economic sense, but healthcare sense. You know, instead of every hospital in the United States on its own, trying to do what's better for itself, trying to innovate, trying to take data and everybody trying to interpret what works. We should have in this country centers for healthcare innovation, hospital centers that take projects in and innovation in 
not looking for a financial incentive, but are funded entirely maybe by the federal government or by the state so that they can do things that don't make a lot of economic research sense, that don't make a lot of business financial sense, but make a lot of healthcare sense. An example of that is why are we not quickly actively doing a study on the awake and walking ICU that yes in a system that acknowledges that their mortality rate is less than half of the multiple other COVID ICUs in the system yep. they acknowledge that but they don't invest in disseminating that they're not doing the research on it yep. they're not standard standardizing that within their own system yep why yeah a system like that what you're talking about an organization where we could say hey let's do a study on this hospital and understand what they're doing so that we can share that with everyone and have an impact on the rest of the world. If that was a drug that was making that kind of impact on mortality, we'd have a study published by now. Yes. But, but remember, patient mobility practices, it's not attributable to one company per se, and it can't be bottled up. Yeah. If, if you look carefully and you ask yourself honestly, in this country, who is responsible for distributing and perpetrating innovation through healthcare systems? And the answer is private industry, private industry. You look at these competitions that are out there, a lot of them are technology, healthcare technology um, competitions, how to improve healthcare with technology and, and or pharmaceuticals and not so much with addressing the roots of the system. Right. Right, because, because if you need to pay for attention, if you need to pay for data, if you need to pay for penetration and use and practice, then the things that get the funding to be able to pay for that are the ones that make business sense and are expensive. And if we want innovation to be truly equitable, not only to the patient, but to the innovators and the people trying to perpetrate good um, solutions, we have to come to grips with the system that we have keeps putting more expensive things in front of our healthcare providers and our healthcare systems and saying, this will solve your problems. Classically, that hasn't been the case. <laughs> right. You know, I, I know many of your viewers may also be on, on Medicare. They have, may have noticed their Medicare um, premiums have gone up a, a bit. And that wasn't because of the pandemic. It was actually because of healthcare innovation, because a drug company came out and said, I have a new drug that I'd like you guys all to pay for. And it's very expensive. So, I mean, at some point, somebody has to realize, yeah, you know, these are, these are great innovations. We have to pay for them. But there are a lot of other innovations that we probably don't have to pay anything more than we already paying or even less that we are are missing out on sometimes and and many of these interventions can be rapidly impactful right now especially during time of crisis right, <laughs> right. another wave another surge we've already seen that what we're doing doesn't work mm -hmm. we already have evidence examples outcomes that are drastically different than maybe our home units mm -hmm. it is time to jump in and turn the ship around before the next wave hits yeah, and, and if you think about how much time we have, there only, there's only a certain, there are only certain interventions that make sense during a time like this, where you don't have a lot of 
time to really implement a huge amount of changes, small changes, looking at the details, admitting we have a problem and, and moving in that direction can make a big difference during this time. Absolutely. In summary, ventilator-associated pneumonias are a huge, burdensome, lethal, and expensive problem right now, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. You offer technology that will help decrease time on the ventilator through preventing ventilator-associated pneumonias, mm -hmm. and sedation and immobility has already shown to decrease ventilator-associated pneumonias. I will leave your information on the blog about that, as well as the studies that you've mentioned. And if your team is interested in implementing Dr. Wayne's technology, his new endotracheal tube, and or early mobility and delirium prevention practices, please contact us, www.daytonicuconsulting, and Dr. Wayne's website will be linked on the blog found therein. Anything else you would share with the ICU community, Dr. Wayne? No, I think we, we covered it. And I think we probably talked about a lot of things that many of our, our clinician colleagues are very well aware of during this pandemic. I think so, but I don't know that um, we get the full picture like you've provided. So thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you want to join in on the conversation, leave a voicemail at 801-784-0472 or reach out to me on Twitter. Schedule a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts. Please check out the website www.daytoniceconsulting.com.